So you might want to follow your way through with us here. We began a study of the Gospel of Mark back last September. Took a break through November and December and have re-entered that study here uh, now in February. Last week, I shared a message out of Mark chapter 4, the first 20 verses, which is the parable of the sower, sometimes known as the parable of the seed, sometimes known as the parable of the soils, or as I shared last week, the secret of the kingdom of God. And I would encourage you, if you were not here, you might want to grab hold of the CD of that or look online at our website and you can pull that down uh, in an MP3 format for you. Um, It's so encouraging. I was over, of course, with Mo and Marla Hershey, our missionaries with Mercy Teams International in Singapore and with the Dodies, our workers over in Indonesia, working among the bee people, and both of them shared just how much. So kudos to Bill and to Joy and all of you who do the technological stuff. They feel so connected in the life flow of the body, just being able to hear the messages. And I'm I'm just uh, very humbled. And they listen to them consistently. And uh, what a blessing uh, for them and for me to hear that. And so you have that opportunity as well and would encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, and uh, my voice works as a really good sleep aid for children, too. So if you have children suffering, babies with insomnia, just put on that voice. And I always pray for those babies, even while they're in the womb. Oh, God, as they hear this voice, may they feel very restful. So. The secret of the kingdom that we unpacked last week in the parable of the sower, the seed, the soils is this, that God's heart intention for us is that we bear a harvest that is 30, 60, 100 fold. His desire is that our lives be full of his abundance. That's his heart. That's the secret that he has made known to us. And this morning, as we continue our study, we enter into a passage that I believe is intricately connected to that parable and will help us discover how and what it looks like when our lives are fruitful and what it means to have a heart that is good soil. Now I've entitled the message, Opportunity Knocks. This is our year of opportunity and and Bill has given a great testimony and Millie has just given a great exhortation, both of which, which you'll see set up just perfectly what the word is for this morning. But the Lord, in that incredible picture in Revelation chapter 3, is knocking at the door of our hearts, waiting for us to open the door, to welcome Him in, for the purpose that He can come in and sit down and eat with us, so that 
we can experience intimacy with Him. And because of that, our hearts and lives will be eternally transformed both in the here and now and in the then and there. Because that's His purpose for us. So, let's unpack this passage here this morning. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. What Jesus is doing here, now remember the setting. The setting is out at the lake. The crowds are gathered because Jesus is no longer either welcome in, nor does his ministry any longer fit in the synagogue. And so he's out at the lake teaching the crowds, sitting in a boat, teaches them the parable, and now he shares these very rich sayings with them. Now those of you who are very alert or we're here in the first service, might notice that Jesus actually strings together four sayings which are found in fuller context in other places in the Gospels. One of the Hebrew words for preaching is the word charaz, C-H-A-R-A-Z. And if you have your bulletin, by the way, you can use the tear-off for sermon notes. If you didn't fill that in and put it in the offering plate for LEDTS, you can use that for sermon notes. And I would encourage you to do so, because what I'm going to unpack to you today, I'm going to give you only a bit, and I'm going to ask you to delve in more to the passages we're looking at this morning. But that word, that Hebrew word for preaching, literally means stringing together a strand of pearls. And what Jesus does here in His preaching by the lake is He strings together a strand of pearls. He takes a number of sayings which He has unpacked in fuller length in other places and brings them together here. This is something preachers do and continue to do. But as he shares those words, and he shares these sayings, they are so memorable that they would, in the ears of his hearers, would likely have brought back some of the other things that Jesus said and preached 
to them on other occasions because Jesus was constantly teaching and preaching and healing and doing the kingdom stuff. All right? So, what I'd like to do this morning is unpack these four sayings and use them as a means of helping us understand this good soil and God's intention for your life and mine. All right, so there's the context. Now let's narrow the lens in and look in depth. First, the first statement saying he says is, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? All right, now there's going to be extra points for folks here. There's extra sermon points available today, okay? Where can you remember? What, what, what's the context? What is the fuller thing that Jesus talks about? Where, where do you remember him using this phrase? Anybody remember? Where? Matthew 5. All right. Very good. Either somebody has really good memory or good notes in your Bible. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, here's the phrase. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So here in Mark 4, do you bring a lamp and put it under a bowl or bed? No, instead, don't you put it on its stand? You're in the light of the world. Of course, Jesus says in John, John chapter 8, He says, I am the light of the world. And because He is the light of the world, our lives are intended to reflect that light, to be, to take the lamp of the life and truth of Jesus and shine that to a world that is in deep darkness. And the only way that that's going to happen is if that light comes through a transparent vessel. It's not going to work if you put a light and hide it under a bowl. It's the same word for basket or bushel. Remember the song? Hide it under a bushel. No. no. I'm going to let it shine. Thank you, Stephanie. All right. Come on. Let's sing it, girl. All right? <laughs> you don't remember? <laughs> We're going to shine it for the world to see. To put it on a stand. Not to hide it under the bed. 
That's not going to reveal very much. The Lord intends for your life and mine as part of the good soil, as part of being fruitful followers of Christ. His intention is that our lives be transparent so that His light may shine through us. If there's smudges on the glass, if the glass is opaque, if we put up really pretty frilly curtains, all of that can block that light from shining. Okay, let's go on to the next saying. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Now this one is a little tougher to know where this... What, what's the context? What is Jesus... Where does he use this particular phrase? Those of you that weren't in first service, Jen. <laughs> you got it, Sharon. All right, you've got the... Do you remember the other reference? It's in Matthew, again, yes. Here it is. The scripture is found in Matthew chapter 10. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing that is concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy, bo- destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. The invitation to your and my heart is this. It's an invitation to integrity. Integrity speaks of a congruence between what's on the inside and what's on the outside. The truth that you receive and, and the life that you live in your interior life will be integrally connected with the life you lead on the outside. So as Jesus said in other places, it's not just what you put in from the outside, that it's what comes out of your heart that makes you clean or unclean. It's what's coming out. So we feed on that which is good in order that what might come out might be life-giving and fruitful. Now Jesus sets this in the context then of an instruction to not be afraid. Because the world is very unsettled by people who walk with integrity of the truth. 
Scripture is very clear. The world hates the truth. It doesn't want the truth. It kills truth. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. Not one of you, them, falls to the ground, the sparrows, apart from the will, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows us that intimately. Some of you, he spends a lot of time numbering the hairs in your head because it's changing very rapidly, day by day. But he cares for us. And nothing that's hidden is going to remain. Nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. That's why there's a radical call to integrity in our lives. He's hard after this in our hearts these days. Okay. Let's go on to the next one. If anyone has ears, let them hear. Listen up. Basically, the, the, the NIV translates that a little bit passively. It's a little more actively than that. It's like, listen up! You got ears? Listen up! Now verse 24, Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Alright, more sermon points available. Where does Jesus use that phrase? In what context? Somebody? Anybody? Where does he use this thing about measuring? With the measure you use... What's that? Mercy, yeah, right. That's it, but what, what's the... There's a, there's a context that he uses that specific phrase in. What was that? Judging others, yes. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about authenticity here. He says... In Matthew chapter 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now here's the intention of the Lord. His intention is that we walk in authenticity which is the opposite of hypocrisy. Authenticity means there's a sincerity, a singleness of our life rather than a doubleness. And the fact of the matter is, all of us walk in some level of doubleness and God's intention is to bring us into singleness of heart and mind and spirit and a sincerity and a humility and an authenticity before Him. Now, this if there's any verse in the Bible that most Americans know, they know this one. Don't judge. Okay, we, they, they know that one. That's sort of the, 
That's sort of the Magna Carta of American individualism, relativism, and tolerance. You can't judge. Well, that's not really what Jesus is getting at. Because later, particularly in the context of Luke, he talks about you judge a tree by its fruit. He talks about discerning and knowing what's right, wrong, that there is truth. But what he is getting at here, and the thing that we need to pay attention in our hearts, he's getting at an attitude of judgmentalism. Someone has taken that and uh, Terry Cooper and, and, and used it as an acronym, and I'll just very quickly, what does judgmentalism look like? Judgmental. It means it, we justify ourselves in spite of our faults. We understand only our own viewpoint. We denounce persons rather than behaviors or ideas. We have grandiose thinking that is disconnected from humility. It makes us more and more alienated from our dark side. Enhances self-righteousness through putting down others. Needs other people's sins in order to dodge ourselves. Turns away from grace and acceptance of self and others. Avoids the anxiety of seeing life's complexity. Loves labels as a form of security. That's judgmentalism. Several years ago, I read a pamphlet by John Arnott that was very, very, um, really ah, convicting. And I've shared pieces of that before, but I want to remind you. This is, he, he writes about a time when his congregation was going through a particular study about being pure in heart, and they were doing this study, and, and, and the study that they were going through, this assertion was made by um, the person who, the study that they were working with. And this, the assertion was this, the Holy Spirit is always doing the positive. The enemy is always doing that which is negative. Always, the the message of the Spirit is positive for building up, for encouragement, to, to, to bring transformation. The enemy is always there to bring down, to criticize, to accuse. And in this study, this person had used a diagnostic and had done it with thousands of different people. And what they discovered was, as they took it, all over with all kinds of different people, is that 80% of our thinking is negative and critical and accusing of ourselves and other people. And 20% of our thinking is positive and upbuilding. And So his conclusion was this, 80% of the time we're agreeing with the enemy. 80% of the time, our thoughts are agreeing with the accuser. Only 20% of the time are we in agreement with the Holy Spirit. That's a problem, don't you think? God help us. With the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. 
So if you want to use a big bucket of condemnation and accusation and negativity and criticalness with that bucket that you use to measure others, it's that same bucket that's going to be used to measure you. Two trees in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and became aware of their own sinfulness and, or became aware of their own nakedness and ultimately in that sin and brokenness and became aware. And that's, we continue to eat of that tree rather than the tree of life. Our words, there's power in our words, blessing or cursing. How many of our words, how much of our words are words of blessing? How much are words of cursing? We talked about this last week with the seed. You, you know, you're in marriage. You want to sow criticism and accusation. What harvest do you think you're going to get back? Hello. This is, as Pastor Carroll would say, a no-brainer. Right? What are we sowing with our words? What are we sowing with our thoughts, our prayers? Lord, have mercy! I mean, if we really get a hold of this, as John Arnott says, once he said, once I got a hold of this, he said, I realized, I want to be the most loving and forgiving and, 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 and blessing person on earth. Because that's what I want coming back. The measure used in my life. Get it? This is vitally important. It's important in your home. It's important in your workplace. It's important in your school. It's important in your church. It's important in your neighborhood. It's important wherever and anywhere where you are alive. To have this authenticity to... To be willing to allow the Lord to crack open your heart and find that beam in our own eye to have that removed in order that we might see clearly to help our brothers and sisters to hear the Word of the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't discern. It doesn't mean that we cannot judge fruit, but it does mean that we start with our own hearts and allow the Lord to speak His mercy into us so that we can speak His mercy into others. Does that make sense? Everybody follow that? Okay, good. One more saying of Jesus. These Aren't these powerful? And you'd have just done like I would which is, we all just sort of read through and go, well, that's really nice stuff, Jesus. But there's an enormous amount that he unpacks for us here. The final is that of responsibility. And it's kind of interesting that uh, it was really a coincidence that uh, Bill had a testimony this morning and Millie had an exhortation. Man, really good coincidence. Hmm. <laughs> 
Hmm. What was that? What was that scripture you referenced, Millie? What, what were you talking about? Which parable was that? Pa- yeah, parable of the talents. Yeah. Well, let's read this last verse. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Where do you think that's found? Talents. Parable of the talents. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. I'm going to read this quickly. Again, verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. The reality is is that every single one of you in this room has been given a trust by the Master. You have been given a trust. It's yours. It's in your... It's embedded in the reality of your life. It's not somebody else's trust. We spend a lot of time being really concerned about other people's trusts. But the fact is, each of us has been given our trust from God. He has entrusted us. And we have a test. And the test is, what will we do with that trust? What will we do with what He has given to us? Not what He's given to the person sitting next to you or somebody else or to the pastor or your parents or some other, but to you. What will you do with what you have been entrusted with? And depending on what you do with the trust and what I do with my trust, we will receive a trophy from God. Ultimately, that trophy is Him and intimacy with Him. To the one that has five, five more will be given. In another of the uh, the uh, parallel 
scriptures of this parable, it talks about the cities. And, and with that, with the responsibility comes greater authority. And, and with that authority is intimacy with God. And that's what it's really all about, is intimacy with Him. And the fact remains that one day, as Millie was just sharing, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Rick Howard, in his book, This Was Your Life, gives an indelible picture of his experience with having a very clear vision given to him of that judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to close with this this morning. Because this sort of ties together what we've talked about this morning. This transparency, this integrity, this authenticity, and this responsibility. This that has been given to us, our hearts, our lives, which have been given to us to be good soil in order to be greatly fruitful... And one day we will stand before Him. He writes, For four days I spent studying in my apartment, reading one particular passage at least 14 times. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15 became dominant in my thinking. Let each man take care how he builds upon the foundation. For no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each man's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though He Himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. That's again, 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. He writes, On the night of the fourth day, I fell asleep with my clothes on, too exhausted emotionally and physically to change for bed. Several hours later, I awakened, my heart pounding and my clothes plastered to my body with perspiration. I had seen a vision of the judgment seat of Christ. I had difficulty catching my breath. I was weeping and my eyes were wide open in terror. I well knew the scriptural description of the judgment seat, but I was completely unprepared for the drama and terror of that moment. The Christ that I saw bore no resemblance to the Warner Salmon painting that hung in my childhood bedroom which portrays Jesus as gentle, meek, and mild with chestnut brown locks and blue eyes. I saw Christ as He appears in the first chapter of Revelation. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His presence was awesome and startling, and He was wearing a judge's robe. In my vision, I saw the redeemed as numerous as endless waves of wheat in a Kansas grain field. All Christians of every generation were there. I had been brought up in a small Christian group, so the multitudes of white-robed believers astonished me. As I gazed on the immensity of the gathered church, I recalled the time when I stood on the deck of the old canard liner, the Queen Mary, and marveled at the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean. What came next was not a sight, but a sound. I heard two contrasting and clashing sounds. The first was crying, the weeping and wailing that I'd always associated with the damned. 
Yet I knew instinctively that there were no lost people here. This was the gathered redeemed. In contrast, I heard thunderous rejoicing. What release, what praise. It sounded like a thousand Christian camp meetings rolled into one. Like the hallelujah chorus sung by a multitude of choirs. What an intense contrast. Uncontrolled weeping and unrestrained praise. The sounds clashed like great opposing symbols. Weeping, rejoicing, sorrow and praise. Human responses to loss and reward. Then my eyes were drawn to a group of Christians on my right. And I saw a figure among them that I knew to be the Christ. Jesus carried a torch of fire in His hand, similar to an Olympic torch. And after speaking to each Christian, Jesus dropped the flaming torch into the pile of stubble and grass at the feet of each believer. And what was revealed by the resulting flash of fire brought a cry of joy or sorrow from the believer. My eyes immediately fell to my own feet and my deepest fears were realized. Wood, grass, and hay were piled there. I felt sweat in the palms of my hands and I cried out more to myself than to anyone around. Oh God, is this all I have to show? For seven years of ministry, have my motives and my work been so impure? Immediately I heard these words in my spirit. Son, look around. I quickly noticed that every believer had a similar stack at his or her feet. Some stacks were smaller than mine, others larger. But I saw no one without a stack of grass and stubble. And just as clearly I heard the Spirit say, Son, only when all the dross is burned will what remains be revealed. Wait for the fire. I lifted my eyes from the stack at my feet. I was standing in a small circle of familiar people and my attention was drawn across the circle to the face of a woman who had been very supportive of me in my father's congregation in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Mrs. Shipton and her husband had sat at the front row during every service. For many years, she had led the congregation in monthly missionary services, which had influenced my life greatly. Furthermore, she had taught me when I was a primary student in Sunday school. Because I had been born later in my parents' life, my natural grandparents were deceased, and she had always been Grandma Shipton to me. She had interceded for me faithfully, and a bond had formed between us. When I became a rebellious teenager and drifted away from spiritual priorities, she would come up to me, put her small hand on my shoulder, and say, Ricky, son... I'm praying for you. God has a great purpose for your life. I would shake her hand politely from my shoulder and say with amusement, don't you pray for me, Grandma Shipton. I couldn't have meant it more. Because I knew God answered her prayers, and at that moment, that's the last thing I wanted. One Sunday night during my teenage years of during my years of rebellion, I was sitting with some other teenagers in our customary place, the rear pew. We had passed pictures and notes during my father's sermon, but it was usually not the sermon that brought conviction in those days. It was the altar call. Sometimes the sermon lasted only 15 minutes while the call to walk forward and commit our lives fully to Christ stretched out for more than an hour. When I stood during the altar call on this particular night, God began dealing with me. My head was bowed, my eyes were closed, my hands gripped the back of the pew in front of me, and then instinctively I knew Grandma Shipton was coming for me. I didn't see her coming, I didn't hear her footsteps, and I'd never known her to approach someone personally during an altar call, but I knew she was coming for me. Soon I felt her hand on my shoulder, and her words were not a request, but a command. A command backed by 14 years of prayer. Son, she said, it's time. And I broke down like a little child as she led me to the altar, and I repented and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. During my vision, the Lord reminded me of the last time I'd seen Grandma Shipton on earth. 
She was in her 90s, partially blind. She'd become quite senile, often couldn't remember or recognize my dad when he visited her, although he'd been her pastor for almost 30 years. Every morning, her daughter, Ione, dressed her, sat her in her favorite rocking chair in the darkened living room, put her shawl across her shoulders, and placed her old worn Bible on her lap. I just returned to my parents' home for Christmas vacation. My ministry had taken me to Tennessee. I seldom kept in touch with my old home church in Pennsylvania. During my vacation, Dad had said, Son, I think you should come with me today to visit Grandma Shipton. Probably the last time you'll see her alive. I accompanied him, although I felt that little purpose could be served by visiting her in that condition. When we arrived at the simple two-story frame house, I owned Metis at the door. She reminded me that Grandma now seldom recognized even her closest family, but she thanked me nevertheless for coming. While Dad and I own talked in the entry, I stepped across the threshold into the living room and suddenly I heard her voice. Ricky, son, is that you? Ricky, I pray for you every day. God has a great work for you to do. I was startled. Was I hearing things? No, Dad and I own stood behind me with looks of shock on their faces. She didn't speak another sensible word in the hour that followed. Her conversation was rambling and disconnected, but God had allowed her spirit one clear, unrepeatable moment. She was irrevocably bonded to that little boy through prayer and the vision God had given for his life. And in my vision, a voice like the sound of many waters startled me out of my reminiscing. Lily Shipton! Jesus Christ himself was standing before my spiritual mentor. I don't think I'd ever even heard her first name. Certainly not that I remembered. Lily Shipton, Jesus said again, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Touch the torch to the grass and stubble at her feet. It burned instantly in a flash of fire. And when the flames had consumed the stubble, I saw a pile of gold and silver and precious jewels at her feet. And she bent over to gather the valuables, taking them in her arms. She laid them at the feet of Jesus and began to praise the Lord. And to this day, I remember that spirit of praise. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And I will never forget what happened next. My attention was drawn to a young man I'd gotten to school with seven years earlier. I hadn't seen Todd, not his real name, for several years, but knew instinctively why he stood there with me at this vision of Christ's judgment seat. We'd been bonded together despite our differences. What a contrast we'd made. He was tall and handsome, a leader within the student body at his college. I was a scrawny, undeveloped teenager. Although he was a college student, I, a mere high school sophomore, we had attended classes at the same Bible school and had grown very close because of our mutual spiritual commitment. We each received the call to preach during the same spiritual emphasis week and met frequently for prayer and study from that time forward. Todd often prayed with great fervency for the people of Africa, believing that the Lord was calling him to mission work there. My friend was dating a beautiful girl from the East Coast. She came from a wealthy family, ranked near the top of her class in college, selected homecoming queen. One spring evening in Georgia, while Todd and I sat in his car, he told me that he had proposed to this beautiful girl. My heart sank when he recounted how she had responded. I love you and I'll marry you, but not if you become a preacher, and certainly not if you become a missionary. Although this girl professed to be a Christian, I feared their marriage would compromise the call of God on Todd's life. I pleaded with him to consider, but his mind was made up. Placing his hand on my shoulder like a big brother, he said, It's all right, Ricky. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry, friend. Those words still haunt me. Now out of the corner of my eye, I saw the majestic Christ approach my friend. The flaming torch he carried was spitting sparks out of its intensity. And Christ called Todd by a nickname used only by some of his closest friends, then lowered the torch to the pile at his feet. Suddenly, all was burnt. Nothing remained but a blackened circle of dirt, earth. That black, black spot is engraved on my mind. To this day, it makes me shudder. 
As Todd came to the full realization that he had not pleased his master, but had wasted his life, he covered his face with his hands and began to weep and groan in agony. I have no words for what I saw and felt. Not a day has passed since my vision that I have not thought about that black and circle of earth. What a tragedy. Whether a person receives great reward or no reward at all, the verdict at the judgment seat is unchangeable. In my vision, Jesus then approached me. I saw the Christ of Revelation, whose eyes were blazing fire. He stood before me, looked directly into my eyes, and spoke one word, Richard. And I saw the torch dropping towards the grass and straw at my feet, and suddenly I started out of my sleep. The vision ended abruptly. My heart was pounding. My clothes were plastered to my body with perspiration. I was weeping profusely, moving from my bed to my knees. I prayed during the next two to three hours until the sun rose. And I said to the Spirit, Thank you. Thank you for showing me this. And that morning I resolved there will be a new focus in my life. I made phone calls. I wrote letters. I got rid of bitterness. I reconciled with people. I changed some habits because in the light of the judgment seat of Christ, there were things in my life that I didn't want there and other things not in my life that I did want there. And after this vision, I felt washed and cleansed, determined and excited. I began taking full responsibility for my actions, knowing that they would count for eternity. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. I've been deeply convicted again by James chapter 1, verse 22, 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so you deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We have looked this morning to the perfect law of the Lord, into the face of Christ in his words, who has called us to lives of transparency and integrity and authenticity and responsibility. And now, all of us have the opportunity to respond as he knocks upon the door of our heart. And what will our answer be? Worship team, come on up. Please. Please. 